0: you will join me in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. This morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 8. The title of our sermon this morning is Learning the Gospel, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are Gospel, World, and Heard. If you want to follow along in the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 983. Page 983. I wonder how you first learned the gospel. Do you remember the first time that you heard the gospel? What about the first time you started thinking about the gospel and all of the implications of the gospel in your own life? What about the first time you realized that you believed the gospel? One of my favorite stories along these lines over the past few years was written by a woman who started her story like this. She wrote this, The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians, in particular, were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God. She continued. As a professor of English and women's studies on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. Fervent for the worldviews of Freud and Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality, and I probably could have stomached Jesus and his band of warriors if it weren't for how other cultural forces buttressed the Christian right. After my tenure book was published, I used my post to advance the Understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. My partner and I shared many vital interests AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, Golden Retriever Rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, to name a few. It was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The LGBT community values hospitality and uh, apply it with, we applied it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. And she then continues in her story to tell that she wrote an article and it was published in a newspaper and she received quite a few responses to her article, many of them supportive, uh, some of them very dark and judgmental and aggressive toward her in, in their attack of her ideas, but she wrote that while she kept a file of support letters on one side of her desk and all of the attack letters on the other, she said, one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind of inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. And she goes on to tell about a two-year relationship that developed between her and Pastor Ken and his wife, Floyd. They invited her into their home. They exchanged books with her. They talked openly about things like human sexuality and politics. And they never treated her like anything was off-limits to talk about or that she was a project that they were working on. Ken and Floyd continued to live their lives in her midst, and she wrote, When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy." And as a result of this, she started reading the Bible over and over. And eventually, several of her friends from her LGBT community started noticing a change in her. And and she wrote, I continued reading the Bible all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside of me. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. And then, one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in the pew at Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this, I did not ask for this. I counted the cost, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign, but God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. And, and from that moment on, this lady her name's Rosario Butterfield, eventually heard a sermon from John 7:17, 7, where she learned that understanding comes after obedience. She was broken. She was wrecked. She was confronted with the reality of the life that she had been living and all that it had been and all that God calls her to as a human being created in his image and likeness. And she wrote, then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus orphaned and naked In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately on the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. I encourage you to read Rosario Butterfield's book, Meditations of an Unlikely Convert. Her story is... Is inspiring, it's challenging, it's hope-filled. It is an encouragement to all of us to remember the great truth that we know from Romans 1:16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is through the preaching of the gospel that the Lord gives new life to dead, cold hearts. Now, if you're here this morning as a Christian, You may not have this radical story of conversion, something like Rosario Butterfield's, but your story of conversion is no less amazing. It is no less gracious of God. It is no less exciting. When we hear and understand and learn the gospel, when we first understand the grace of God, when we first understand the truth and the love of God that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin to long with all of our being. It's an amazing thing. No matter who we are or where we've been or what we've done, it's amazing that God, by His grace, enters into our lives. He brings us to rubble, and He builds us up in Christ. I hope all of you will pick one person this week to share your story with. If you're a Christian, who will you share your story of conversion with this week? Who will you tell about the first time you heard and believed the gospel? Well, this morning we're beginning a new series through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1. We're going to see his introductory comments. We're going to take a brief look at the context of, of in which he was writing this letter. And then we're going to look at Paul's rejoicing in the Colossian church. These believers who have learned the gospel. These believers who were living train wreck lives and had amazing conversions. And his celebration, his rejoicing in what God has done in their midst they had their own stories, all of them unlikely converts. They had conversions out of some dark, destructive places when the Lord Jesus broke into their world with unbridled grace and love and mercy and kindness through the gospel that was being preached to them. This is how Colossians begins. So let's read verses 1 through 8 together. Colossians chapter 1. Paul because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, And has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Well, the first thing we find in the scriptures this morning in verses 1 and 2 is that Christian fellowship is one of the sweetest gifts from God. Now, before we get into the content of, of this point, it's always good to remind ourselves as we get into a new book of the context. Now, specifically here, it's important to remember that Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians. This isn't just some random assortment of thoughts or ideas. Uh, This isn't a historical recounting of anything uh, per se. It is a letter, and as such, he had a specific aim, a specific focus that he wanted to bring to their attention. And the all-encompassing aim, the the main focus of the book of Colossians is the all-encompassing sufficient supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ as the creator and sustainer of all things and especially the church. This is the focus of the letter, which is, of course, no small undertaking. So my prayer for us as we go down this road, as we journey through this letter, is that we will have an ever-expanding view of the Lord Jesus Christ, of an ever-expanding love for Christ, an ever-deepening appreciation for the supremacy of Christ in all things, and especially uh, for his church. Now, Paul is writing to a people in a small town called Colossae, and that's modern-day the western part of uh, Turkey. Now, most scholars believe the church at Colossae began during Paul's two-year ministry when he was in the city of Ephesus. We see that in Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. Luke, the historian, tells us all who lived in the province of Asia, which includes Colossae, heard the word of the Lord. And we know from the latter part of the book of Colossians, in chapter 4, that Epaphras, who's mentioned here in our verses this morning, he visited Paul while he was in Ephesus. And then Philemon also came to believe and eventually hosted the Colossian church in his home for a time. So Epaphras actually worked with Paul in evangelism in the Lycus Valley. So Paul himself never actually traveled to Colossae as far as we know. He never visited the church in person. We often assume that Paul planted all of the churches that he wrote to, but in this case, he didn't. He was never there. So we have a story of a gospel message reaching the people in Colossae. They heard the gospel. They learned the gospel they believe the gospel, and then the local church was formed there. It's an amazing illustration of what we're saying namely, that God builds his church. God converts people. God brings people into his family through the preaching of the gospel. Well, Paul certainly had an intimate concern for this new church. And he advised the church prayerfully, primarily through Epaphras and Philemon. We do that same kind of thing. Today, I'm in contact with with numerous men who are in new churches or they're new pastors or they're planting new churches. Whatever the case is, they might have questions or they need help and they want to talk to men who've been in ministry longer than them or in established churches and have walked through some of the same challenges. It's the same sort of thing. This is the normal means that God uses for His church as His church grows around the world. Local churches and their ministers serving one another in love. So it makes sense that when a problem arose in Colossae, Epaphras turned to Paul. So what was the major issue in Colossae? Well, we see the same issue come up in various New Testament books. The main issue was the propagation of the false teaching of Gnosticism. Now, as a refresher for some of you and for those who don't know, Gnostics were people who believed that they had a special kind of knowledge. They believed that they had a deeper spirituality, a deeper spiritual understanding than others did. The, The name Gnosticism is from the root word to know. And so literally they considered themselves people in the know, a spiritual elite with all of the answers They had access to God because they were special. The basic belief of Gnosticism on top of that was that anything physical, anything in the physical world was evil, anything created was evil, and only things spiritual were good. And so the Gnostics reasoned that God couldn't have been involved in creation of the universe since it is physical. And having anything to do with the physical is intrinsically evil. So how in the world would they say that God brought the world into being? Well, they taught that it was through this complicated process of God creating thousands of lesser gods. Each of them a little more distant from Him. Until finally, there was a little God that was so distant from Him that it it could touch creation and God would not be touched by it. And that lesser God was able to create, and as a result, that lesser God was inflicted by evil the evil of the created world. Well, why am I telling you all of this? It's important to understand when it comes to what they taught about Jesus and why Paul responded in the way that he did in this letter. They reasoned that if Jesus Christ really was the Son of God, that he couldn't have taken on a human body. And so that spurred on this crazy idea that Jesus didn't actually have a physical body, but rather that he was a spirit. He was this sort of ghostly figure. So Christ to them was not a creator. The incarnation was not real. And Christ was not enough. In fact, they built this system where they began with Christ And then they worked their way up this series of lesser gods until they eventually got to God himself. So this was the latest and greatest teaching in Colossae in this day at the time of Paul's writing. And as a result, they had a system that included a belief that that all that they had to do, they had to make sure that they would not taste, touch, or drink certain things. And that was borrowed from Jewish legalism. They had secret passwords, and that was borrowed from Eastern mysticism. They believed in astrology and the alignment of the stars. And then, of course, they incorporated elements of Christianity so it would be attractive to all of these new Christians. It was this very complex and proud intellectual system, and so the Gnostics looked down on the Christians. They browbeat them, and many of the believers were being pulled away until what they were being told was a more faithful, more spiritual way of religion. This was what was going on. And this was the message that Epaphras brought to Paul while he was writing in prison. And so this letter is Paul's brilliant response to the church who was being attacked by the Gnostics. He wants to make known that Jesus Christ is the supreme creator of all things and he is the all-sufficient redeemer over all things. Now there's no doubt that we face similar heresies in various quarters today, some in milder forms, some actually in almost exact identical ways. But the brilliance of Paul's letter is that he doesn't take a frontal assault on Gnosticism but he sort of flanks them from the side and he attacks the heresy that they were promoting by presenting the truth as it is. He never mentions Gnosticism. He simply goes at them with the truth. But before he gets to that, he commends the church. He celebrates the glorious work of God through the gospel. This ragtag group of people in a small community have now been overtaken by the grace of God As God is building his church, he's doing so through very unlikely means. He's changing lives, and he's changing this community. So Paul writes this letter. And up front, we see, as he's writing this letter, this common greeting that is similar in all of Paul's letters. He reminds them of his apostleship. And if you know Paul's story, we know very well that what he writes here is absolutely true. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That certainly wasn't Paul's doing, was it? In fact, Paul was on his way to kill Christians when the Lord knocked him off of his horse, changed his heart on the spot, and made him a new creation in Christ. God sovereignly made Paul a new creation. And from there, the Lord commissioned him as an apostle. So this was as much as by the will of God as could ever be possible. Now, notice also Paul is not writing this letter alone. This also came, he said, from Timothy, our brother. He was with Paul. Now, remember, he was often with Paul in ministry. Paul mentions him uh, as his son in the faith. But it's wonderful to see how Paul addresses Timothy, not as the young Timothy or as my son or anything like that. He calls him our brother. There was no need for hierarchy in the church in Paul's mind. They were co-laborers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice also, as the later letter identifies the believers in the church in Colossae, he addresses them as saints and faithful brothers. Isn't that amazing? Paul has probably not met many of them, if any of them at all. He will never meet most of them, most likely. But isn't this the sweetness of what God does in his church Isn't this the beauty of the gospel and what it does in God's people? We are made to be new creations in Christ, and as as we are adopted into the family of God and made to be brothers and sisters with one another, we know each other and we love each other without knowing each other. It's a beautiful thing. Just, Just look around here, kind of like the church in Colossae. We too, a, a, a sort of ragtag bunch that God has brought together, right? And we don't just gather once a week and sit in the same room to, to hear the same thing and then disperse, but throughout the week we're in each other's lives. We're learning about what's going on from day to day. We're serving one another. We're praying together. We're meeting with one another. We're spending time eating meals together and, and, and enjoying hobbies together. We're sharing life as brothers and sisters. Just, and so just as our, our mission statement says, Redeemer Baptist Church is a family of faith. We're a family. And I know for me and for my family, for my wife and children, that means everything to us because we've never had any of our relatives live near us. Some of you get to spend time with your parents and your siblings and your 64 million cousins who all live in Effingham County. But there are many in this room who only have their immediate family here, and as a result, we rely heavily on our church family. You are our family. It's one of the sweetest gifts of God that we have fellowship with brothers and sisters. And what I've learned so well through the years is the Lord has given me opportunities to travel around the world and visit believers in so many different places. When you're in the midst of like minded Christians, There is no standoffishness. There is no waiting period when you're welcomed in and loved as a brother or sister in Christ. If that is happening, there's a problem in that local church. Because brothers and sisters instantly recognize one another as such. And in so doing, they're loved and they are cared for like anyone else. That's what the gospel does. That's how the gospel changes us. People we would otherwise have nothing to do with in this life. A lot of times they become our closest allies in life. People we would do anything for. People we would die for. That's such a sweet gift from God, isn't it? And Paul's recognizing that in the, in the church in Colossae in that way. It's like saying, hey, we may never meet in person, but you're my brothers and sisters, and I love you, and I pray for you, and I have a deep concern for you and what's going on in your church. You're a part of my family. That's why we pray for other churches every Sunday, for our sister churches, for churches in our community. We may not, never meet all of these people, but we can love them, we can pray for them, we can hope alongside them in the glorious truth of the gospel. Well, the second thing we learn in this letter in verses 3 through 6 is that learning the gospel unleashes the unstoppable power of God to increase his church. Here, Paul reveals the prayer that he and Timothy have prayed for the church, and the prayer is in light of what Epaphras has shared with them about their faith in Christ and about their love for the church. And notice in verse 5, he says they have this because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now this is really shorthand for what Paul took a, a lengthier time to write about in Ephesians chapter 1. That great chapter where, where Paul expounds on the reality that the hope of the Christian is the resu- and the resulting love that comes from the Christian is all as a, as a result of our setting our eyes on our future hope. and and seeing as we set our eyes on the future hope of all that is already our possession. All of the treasure of heaven is already ours to possess and to hold on to. And this was all an an accomplishment of God's purposes. As he wrote in Ephesians, he said, to be put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now remember, remember, the Gnostics were, were saying that everything is a great mystery and you need to have a special knowledge to access this mystery. But already here in the beginning of this letter, Paul's going after that false idea, right? Look, Paul writes, there's, there's no mystery here. This is what he's saying. The Lord has laid up for us the greatest treasure in heaven and our longing for that hope Our longing for glory overflows into a love for one another, into a love for the church. There's no mystery here. This is exactly what God has revealed to us in his word. You see that in the remainder of verse 5, the first part of verse 6. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. In other words, you already know this. You have already heard this. You've already learned this. You see, Paul is simultaneously reminding them that there are things that they have already learned. And so if they are turning to a false gospel, they should see what's going on. They should recognize it for what it is. But at the same time, Paul's encouraging them. He's encouraging them with the truth. And he's renewing their hope in what they have already believed. He's a master. <laughs> and he writes of the gospel, he says, As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now obviously at this point the gospel hadn't spread through the whole world. It's a bit of hyperbole on Paul's part. But he's making a point. He's saying the gospel has been unleashed and once it's unleashed it is unstoppable. You learn this gospel, you believe this gospel, now others are learning this gospel and believing this gospel, and the result is that it is bearing fruit, and it is increasing, and the Lord is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you know what that's like, because it has happened in your midst, and it's happening all over the place. And this is the very same thing God is doing today, isn't he? all over the world people are hearing and learning and believing the gospel and the results of that are unstoppable just think about that today right now somewhere in this world someone is hearing the gospel for the first time or someone for the first time is being given by the holy spirit ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand and they are believing the gospel for the first time maybe right here this morning have you learned the gospel Have you learned about the perfect life lived by Jesus Christ to fulfill the law to perfection, the law that you and I are required to fulfill on our own but cannot fulfill because we have sinful, corrupt souls that live at enmity with God from the moment that we are conceived? Have you learned about the sacrificial death of the perfect Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross, taking upon himself the full weight of the wrath of God that we deserve, that was reserved for us, but took on himself that we need not bear that wrath. He took the penalty and the punishment for our sins. He was made to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Have you learned that Jesus was buried in a tomb for three days and then by the power of God was raised from the dead and even today Jesus lives and reigns from heaven seated on the throne as the forever king. And as a result of all of this, God has made clear in his word that we are all guilty sinners. We all, not one of us has any righteousness of our own to offer. Our standing before God, our own works It's a fruitless endeavor to bring them before God. They will only serve to condemn us further. But by the mercy of God, by the grace of God, he's made a way that by faith alone we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. No secret passwords, no mystery knowledge, no special handshakes or ceremonies. Faith alone trusting in and loving and holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ as your only help for redemption. Christ alone, nothing else. So maybe you have a life that right now you would describe a lot like Rosario Butterfield described her life, an absolute train wreck. Or maybe you want another description. Maybe your life is more like a dumpster fire. Whatever you want. Maybe you really haven't thought about it through, through all of it very much to this point. But right now you're thinking about your life and who you are and where you are and all that God has given you and you realize that you've lived for yourself. And you thought it would bring you joy and peace and satisfaction, but it has only brought you frustration and the lack of contentment that you've been longing for and the peace that you haven't found. You know why I know that? Because I've been there. Because my own life has been a train wreck and a dumpster fire. All at the same time and so I commend the Lord Jesus Christ to you that by faith you can turn to Christ and he will not turn you away without money you can come to Christ and buy all that he has to offer he will give you the water of life that as you drink it you will never thirst again The bread of life, that as you eat it, you will never hunger again. And when he does that, this gospel that you have learned, this gospel that you have believed will bear fruit and will increase in you that your spiritual life will be full, that you'll be able to accomplish with the gifts that God has given you. All that he has called you to do to serve and make known the glorious riches of Christ that we hope in, toward the expansion of his kingdom in all of the world. The power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. Do you have faith in Christ? Are you walking in light of the gospel that you have learned? If you're here this morning and you don't know why you're here this morning and as I'm preaching all of this, maybe you're a bit uncomfortable with where things are in your life. I'm gonna tell you, it's probably too late. The Holy Spirit probably already has a hold of you. He's probably already doing what he's going to do, and before long, you're going to be saying Jesus with love instead of enmity. The last thing we see this morning is how that gospel is taught and what God does to bring to the whole world this unstoppable power. Verses 7 through 8, Paul shows us very simply that God uses ordinary Christians to bring about his extraordinary ends. For all we know, Epaphras was a simple, humble, faithful Christian guy who wanted to do his part for the kingdom of God. He spent a lot of time with Paul. He spent time with Paul in prison when he penned his letter to Philemon. He wanted to serve the church. He wanted to make known what God had done in his life, sharing his story with those around him, reminding them of who he once was and who God made him to be. Now, no doubt, Epaphras had his own unlikely story of conversion, of how he became a Christian, his own train wreck conversion. But Epaphras learned the gospel, and this gospel changed him as a man. And his understanding of the gospel and the implications of his understanding grew in his heart, and it was bearing fruit and it was increasing, and so Epaphras was able to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to bring about the Lord's purposes in his, in his church in Colossae. And this is how God works, isn't it? That God uses simple people, common people, ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He uses unlikely people to accomplish amazing ends. And that just shows us the, how extraordinary God is, doesn't it? Nothing we do as God's servants can bring about the ends that only God can accomplish. I can't save you. Only God can do that. And yet, we can teach the gospel, we can preach the gospel, we can share the gospel. We all, as God's people, have that opportunity, we have that calling to share our story, to share the story of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished in each of our lives. But our God is a God of means, and you and I are his means. Ordinary people that God uses to do his extraordinary things. And so, let that be our prayer. May God be pleased to use us and our gifts to make known to the world, to teach the world. There is no secret. There is no mystery to uncover anymore. There is no special handshake. There is no decoder ring that we need. There is Christ and Christ alone. And the simple, glorious truth of the gospel that he lived for us, he died for us, and he rose from the dead for us. That as we live in him by faith, we will have life everlasting. And so the call is to believe on Christ, to trust in Christ, to rest in Christ. May it be that we all treasure Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word, and we are especially thankful this morning for the reminder of the power, the force, the unstoppable nature of the gospel. Lord, as we think about our own lives we are very quickly reminded of of who we are, who we have been. And if we're Christians this morning, we can express gratitude that you broke into our lives, maybe even when we had no desire for you to do so. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you transformed us and made us to be new creations in Christ. The old man, the old woman has passed away. And the new man, the new woman in Christ has been raised up to live in the newness of life in joy and peace everlasting with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for doing that work in our lives and in our midst. We pray, Lord, for those who are here this morning who do not know Christ. May it be your will, may it be your pleasure that you would send your spirit to awaken them from the dead And Lord, many don't even know they are dead, and yet they are. May you give them new life in Christ, that they might see with new eyes, that they might hear with new ears, that they might understand with new hearts, that they might walk faithfully, treasuring Christ all the days of their lives. We pray you would do that, Lord, for your glory, for the building up of your church that they too might know the sweetness of Christian fellowship and all it means to be a part of the body of Christ. We pray you would do that, Lord. And we ask it all in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.